Heavenly Father, as we have just heard about the, the word and work of Bible League to take your word around the world for the transforming effect that it has upon a people who both do know you and those who are yet to know you. Lord, we pray that your word would have its deep, lasting effect in our lives as we look at it this morning. Not because of the persuasiveness of my words or how things are articulated, but because of the power of the very word of God itself. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that it reveals your plan of salvation even before the foundation of the world to call the people to yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, we pray that as we are told that all of it is profitable, that we might profit, that we might be rebuked, corrected, <coughs> trained in righteousness, that we might be complete and equipped for every good work. And I thank you for the gift of your word and the gift of your spirit. And may your spirits be stirring within us to receive and to apply by the empowerment of your spirit the things that you put before us this morning. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to go out on a limb and say every single one of us at some stage when we were a kid did something really nasty to another kid. Now, I might have done that maybe more than some, but I reckon odds are high that all of us at some point did it. You've upset them. Maybe you've even upset them so much that their parents called your parents. And then you had the chat. As a result of that chat, you have been thoroughly convinced, well, persuaded maybe, that you need to apologise to that child that you upset. The next day we get back to school, we find that kid, and then we kind of mumble something along the lines of, Mum said I had to say sorry. That's sincerity at its finest, isn't it? Mum said I had to say sorry. And then you walk away because you've done your duty. You go home, you tell mum you said sorry and everything's good. Don't copy that, but that's what I've seen happen on occasion or practised on occasion maybe even. That's not sincerity. That child doesn't say, wow, all that pain and hurt is now taken from me. It's worth very little. In fact, some people never grow out of it. We know that we should. We should apologise when we've done the wrong thing. But sometimes it's because maybe it saves me from the consequences of my actions if I say something. Maybe it's to save my reputation. It, it tainted my reputation in the community. And it just becomes a more polished performance when you get older. Maybe there's some tears. If it was me, maybe you need to get an onion to get the tears to flow. And you might just word it in a way that's far more articulate and far more convincing. But all of us will agree, a genuine change of heart is more than just words and more than just doing certain actions or motions. 
Today, as we've been working our way through the book of Joel, it takes a bit of a pivot. You probably don't need me to remind you that the, where we've been so far, from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 11, it hasn't been overly positive. It has been God declaring his judgment on his people for their rebellion against him. And today there's a pivot towards hope, grace and mercy. In chapter 1 we saw a devastating locust plague unlike anything they ever saw before as an act of judgment against, from God against the people that affected their food, affected their ability to worship God, affected their livestock. And God, rather than being ashamed of acting in judgment, says, I want you to tell this to your children, and to your children's children, to all generations. That people for all generations would know that God is serious about sin. And God will act decisively against sin. In chapter 1, verse 14, the priests were called to gather the people together. That their one and only hope was that they would cry out to God for his mercy. In verse 15 of chapter 1, Joel spoke of a day of the Lord that was something that was near. Then as we began chapter 2 last week, began with sound the alarms. This day is coming. And Joel describes it in terms of like an army coming against them. An army that was totally unhindered, unstoppable, that would completely and utterly decimate. We saw that wonderful depiction in verses 7 to 8, describing saying they are like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his own way and they do not even swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and they are not halted. I just love that Hollywood blockbuster image of they burst through weapons. Nothing stops them. You know, you see them those movies where they're just firing all their best weapons and these, this army just continues to come totally unaffected. That was the picture which the prophet Joel had given the people of what it would look like if they didn't return to the Lord. Then today begins with one of my favourite words in the Bible. Actually, depending on your translation. Yet or but. I say depending on your translation because unfortunately if you've got an NIV or a New King James they've just decided not to translate the word and include it into the sentence. Making a contrast to what has gone before. Up until then, it was like, this is what is coming to you. This is the natural consequences of your actions, yet or but. Despite the extent of their wickedness, there is hope. There is opportunity to avoid this judgment. A hope that rests upon God's character, his sovereign mercy, and for the glory of his name. Today we're going to look at what it looks like to return to the Lord. What it looks like as a hope for those who have rebelled against him. We're going to look at returning 
Even now in this state, in verses 12 to 14, the urgency of repentance in verses 15 to 16, that it's all for his name's sake in verse 17, and conclude with a challenge about torn garments or torn hearts. Firstly, return even now. I'm going to preface by saying that the majority of our time this morning is going to be spent in verses 12 to 14. So when we get to the end of 12 to 14, don't think the sermon's going to be three times longer than that. We'll probably spend about 80% of our time in these verses. After what was a hopeless depiction of the day of the Lord in verses 1 to 11, totally unstoppable, cannot be hindered, Hope comes with that one word, yet or but. And it's an important word. Hence why I say it's disappointing that the NIV and the New King James have just decided not to, not to translate it, just to leave it out. Because it shows there is a contrast between what has already been said. After a confident proclamation of judgment all the way from the beginning up to where we come now, Yet, but, this does not have to be the inevitable, inescapable outcome because of your actions. This yet or but is one of my favourite words in the Bible because it stands in the middle in statements between the natural course of where our own actions were leading us and it forms the pivot between Because of the work of God, where he can take us to, where he can save us from and save us to. To give you just a couple of examples, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Among who we all once lived according to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Just only about ten verses down from there. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Or in one single sentence of Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This yet, or this but, transitions from the natural course, the helpless estate that is the pathway of our own actions transitions to the hope that is built upon the character and work of God. And I like the fact that it says yet despite the fact that their sin was so abhorrent that everything that's been written up to that point was entirely justified so abhorrent that it was to prompt this great and terrible day of the Lord. Yet, even now, even when the depths of their sin was that bad, the heart of God 
is still to say, return to me with your whole heart. God does not have in his vocabulary the expression, you are too far gone. There is no one who can out-sin the grace of God that that they get crossed off the list of being beyond someone who can be saved by our God. Anyone who thinks that maybe they've done too much, done something so evil that God could never forgive them, may you hear those words from our God, return to me, turn to me with all of your heart. Notice he says, return with your whole heart. Turning to God is never a half-hearted thing you do. It's not just something you just casually do because it's convenient. You know, when you might sign up to a membership to something, just because in doing that, it might give you 10% off at a shop somewhere, so you think, oh, I don't really care about this thing, but if it helps out in this regard, I'll do that. Following God is either all in or all out. That's what following God looks like. It's a wholehearted thing. Like we read about it initially, those famous verses in Deuteronomy chapter 5, you shall love the Lord your God, what with? With all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. Jesus himself repeated that when asked, what is the most important of the commands? And the Lord describes what it looks like to turn to him wholeheartedly. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping and mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Every single person who turns to God does so on God's terms. It's not open to negotiative, okay, you're God, this is what I'll offer you, take it or leave it, this is all I've got. You turn to him with all of your heart or you don't turn. Even if you may have convinced yourself that you have turned. Joel says with fasting and weeping and mourning. Now there are some people, particularly if you're more pragmatically minded, who could think, well there you go, here's a a threefold checklist of what I need to do. I love a good checklist so so I can tick it off. All I need to do is I need to fast and weep and mourn. It's kind of like the the spiritual equivalent of, sorry, mum told me I had to say I'm sorry. You think, man, I can do that. I can miss a few meals, put on some tears, have a bit of a wail, and I'm in. But before anybody thinks they can secure God's mercy by going through the motions of some external things, notice what it says there at the end of verse 13. Rend or tear your hearts, not your garments. In other words, it is a matter of a change of hearts. You can do all of the ritual. You can wail, you can, you can mourn, you can weep, you can tear your garments all you like. You can do it with such gusto and volume. You can gather a crowd around you. But if it is not coming from a deep heart place, it's worth nothing. 
Now, in Old Testament times, people would display during times of repentance. They would put on the sackcloth, they'd put on the ashes, they would tear their clothes as the outward expression of something that is inwardly taking place. God's not saying here, I don't want you to do any of that stuff. It's, it's silly. There are things that they're encouraged in the scripture. What he is saying is, do not only do these things. If that is all you've got, is the, the external displays, if you don't mean it, don't do it. It does nothing. I want your hearts to be torn by your own sin that you will turn wholeheartedly to God. And if that's not true, don't bother going through the motions of the externals. You can't manipulate or twist God's arms by saying, oh, but I cried this much about it. Look at all me ripped clothes over there. They can't even go down to the down of Vinnie's. They're ripped now. But we see this connection between a wholehearted love of God coming from the heart and nothing else in Deuteronomy 10. Where it says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens and heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your hearts, and no longer be stubborn, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty and awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He says, you want to follow God with all of your hearts? That circumcision thing, it was never about the external ritual of doing it. It was about your heart. He says, God is not persuaded. God is not taking a bribe. You cannot do enough external actions to somehow twist God's arm into showing you grace, mercy and favour. God has never desired heartless religious observance. To carry out God's commands from a heart that's far from him is actually offensive. It actually kind of makes a mockery of him. It's one of the reasons why when every time we gather around the Lord's table we say, this represents what Christ has done to deal with your sin. And if you haven't trusted in Christ to do the one who deals with your sin, don't, don't come make a show of something that's not a reality. Don't make a mockery. We think of the way the Lord spoke through Amos in chapter 5. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts. These were feasts that God had commanded. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you often read burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps, I will not listen. God says, all of these things which I commanded you, if you just do them, 
and your heart isn't far from me, they're an abomination. Don't do them. God wants and deserves your whole heart. He will not accept or be manipulated by your actions to twist his arm. So why does Joel urge the people to return to the Lord? Is it because it's a bit unfair, they've, they've been through enough, make life a little bit easier? Well, he provides his own reasoning. Return to the Lord your God for, this is the because, it's his character. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Incidentally, that's the exact same language the way in which God revealed himself in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And do you want to know what's happening in Exodus chapter 34 when he says that? This is after they had broken covenant. He gets Moses to write a new set of tablets with the law upon them and they were renewing a covenant before God as a rebellious people. He's kind of pointing them back, saying, remember who I am? I am the God who restores a rebellious people if they will cry out to me in repentance. So return to the Lord with your whole heart. Why? What will be the outcome? Who knows? whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Who knows? That's not exactly a confident message of hope, is it? He's like, return to the Lord. Who knows what he might do? God is not controlled by our actions. He is sovereign. He is free. He is the one who reveals himself. He says, I can have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But also this, whatever things they do from this point onwards, only he knows whether or not their hearts are really in it rather than just the religious externals. What I can say though, is that there's never been a single person who has wholeheartedly turned to the Lord who has been disappointed. Our confidence is never our actions. Our confidence is built upon his character revealed to us. He's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But of all the depictions of what his grace and mercy looks like, he said, speaks about the grain and the drink offering, which we saw back in chapter 1, verse 13, when the, where the priests were told to, to wail over the fact that they'd lost the grain and the drink offering as they'd been destroyed by the locusts. Why is this kind of like the, the pinnacle thing about talking about the blessing that maybe God will give? Because the grain and drink offering were part of the daily offerings that were given to allow an unholy people to have fellowship with a holy God. 
So far greater than the fact of having all your food back and all the other things, the greatest blessing that God could give would be to restore fellowship with him. Turn your heart sincerely to God, not just to make your life better, but to be reconciled to your maker, to know the blessing of being restored and reconciled to him. With repentance, a deeply cut heart. Not a popular topic, but a matter of urgency. Just like we saw in the opening verse of chapter 2, it returns to this idea of blowing a trumpet or a shofar. Not so much as a warning of this impending day of the Lord, now it's a call, an assembly to gather the people that the priests were told to do back in 1.14 to, to command and gather the people as a solemn assembly of all of the people where they were told to bring them together for corporate lamentation, repentance, to cry out to God on the basis of his character. Even in chapter 1, the priests were told to gather all of the inhabitants, not just get a 50% quorum, gather all of the inhabitants This was serious. This is the sin and the judgment of God. Repentance is important. The issue of sin was a corporate issue. Therefore, it was important they corporately gather and cry out to God. Now, I imagine if I said, we're going to have a church meeting next week and I want everyone in the church gathered my guess is what we would have we'd have a fair few people we'd have some who think well I've got got a little child that needs to go go to sleep at that time or I've got this other really important commitment so we'd have whatever was left after those things are subtracted if it was extremely super important I hope we would have everyone here but when Joel describes the important and comprehensive nature of everyone gathering calling out to God in repentance with all of their heart he's like all of you I mean all of you there is no greater higher priority there's no one who shouldn't shouldn't be here he says gather all the people consecrate the congregation assemble the elders being the elderly the children so whether you're old whether you're young all the way in between even the nursing infants let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber so he's talking about a couple who've become married they've entered into the bridal chamber to consummate their marriage and they say no that can wait we're coming together we're crying out to the lord Imagine if I sent Sam and Millie a text message on their wedding night saying, we're going to have a church meeting, come on down. They would have loved that, wouldn't they? We didn't do it. And I won't do it if I conduct your wedding in the future. Unless there is a major need for corporate repentance, of course. Everyone without exception was together. When you take God seriously, you take repentance seriously. The people were to be consecrated or sanctified or set apart for God. I think a church universally would do well as we restore the importance 
and the urgency of repentance. If you're serious about God, you have to be serious about repentance. So why should God relent of his judgment if the people are genuinely repentant? For his name's sake. Verse 17 is a beautiful verse. It says, Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, Where is their God? But the bit I've got highlighted there, Joel even gives the priests the words to pray, which have two aspects to it. It has both a request and a reasoning for their request. The request is to spare your people. A reminder, these are God's covenant people. But look at the reasoning. The reason isn't spare your people because this is unfair. It's not spare your people because we've done it tough for long enough, we've endured. It's not spare us because we don't deserve it. It's spare us because we don't want people to speak poorly of our God. Do it because of the glory of your name, your reputation. I've already said God is free to have compassion upon whom he chooses to have compassion. But in that prayer we see, if God does not deliver, if God does not save a truly repentant people, they were worried that the nations might speak poorly of their God, that they might misrepresent his character, either that he's unloving toward his people, uncaring, not abounding in steadfast love, or that he is powerless to act. So they ask for his mercy because of his character and because of his name. Or as the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray, hallowed be your name. May you be declared, may you be glorified and made known in all things. Turn to the Lord. Repentance is important. Based upon his character and for his glory. Now it would be remiss of me to finish without some form of challenge. Firstly, the question of, have you turned to the Lord at all for the forgiveness of your sins? I'm not asking if you have sinned, because on the authority of the word of God, which says that everyone has sinned, I know you have. Because it is an urgent matter to be reconciled to your God. That depiction that we saw last week of the great and terrible day of the Lord was a picture of how God will act decisively against human rebellion against him as our rightful, good, loving king. Unless we are restored to him, that is our future. Today we saw even at the depths of their sin, The character of our God is to say, turn to me. I'm gracious. 
merciful, abounding in steadfast love. Regardless of how evil someone had become, but a truly repentant at a level of the heart, he says, return to me. And if you really are turning, it's not just about ritual. It's not about ticking a few boxes of, okay, I better start coming to church more often or I better start doing this. But it is to be wholehearted. Because Jesus Christ has died on the cross. He has dealt with that sin. The fullness of God's wrath is poured out on him so that it doesn't have to be poured out on you if with all of your heart you repent and you turn and place your trust in him. But for those who already know Jesus, there is also a challenge. Is it possible that you might have wandered somewhat from him remember Joel is writing to God's covenant people who had wandered is it possible that you maybe have wandered sort of not intentionally and it happens kind of slow slowly that you even yourself haven't noticed it happening and all of a sudden everything that you have done in the past now sort of just seems to become routine it's what we've always done but the heart's gone the joy is lost, finding all a bit of a struggle to keep up. Remember what Joel says to a people who had wandered far, desperately far. The Lord says, even now, return with your whole heart. On the basis of his character, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, for the glory of his name, as the world sees a God who is gracious, merciful, abounding in steadfast love, who when the people call out to him in genuine heartfelt repentance, not only does he save and restore, but they see his power to transform. Very much like what we read as we looked at the book of James not that long back. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then he describes what that looks like. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's in his character and that we would long to see him glorified as a loving and saving God who not only restores, but who transforms and sanctifies a people for his glory. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, whether that describes us today, a day in the past or a day in the future, as the people who have wandered from the God we love. Lord, may we feel the wretchedness of our wandering. May there be genuine heartfelt expressions of our remorse 
that we had turned from the one who had, who had given his life to, to set us free from sin. Yet at times in our folly have returned to the sin that he came to set us free from. We thank you that you, your character is slow to anger because we confess and we repent that we are so often provoking you in our disobedience. Lord, we thank you that when we turn, you not only restore, but as we come wholeheartedly, as the Spirit continues to work in us, to shape us and to form us to be more like your Son, that, Lord, the people might see in your people the gospel and its transforming, powerful best, that even the most wicked of sinner may turn and know that they too can have complete restoration because of the completed work of Christ. In whose name we give you thanks. Amen. Next week's reading is not from Joel, um, nor is it from Steve. Um, Ray's going to be bringing us a message from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14, verses chapter 6, verse 2. So if you'd like to read ahead, um, if you want to read further ahead in Joel, as I've already encouraged you to read the entirety of the book if you haven't already. Um, but I think the next time we're in Joel, we'll go through towards the end of chapter 2.